Good to see everybody. I said uh, we are live. We welcome all you guys that are with us around the globe here in the States and those of you that will get this podcast sometime. Uh, we welcome you in the service, all you that are here in the building. God bless you. But you can go from zero to 60 in the weather here in Kentucky faster than a Mustang car, can't you? We definitely have all the seasons here in the state of Kentucky and uh, extremes. We get all the extremes around here. So, But God's in charge of the weather. I always say <clears throat> the one place that God lets us know who's in charge is with the weather, right? We can't do anything about it. If he wants it to snow three feet, then it can snow three feet or flood or whatever. He's in charge of the weather. So I got something serious on my heart before we get in the scripture here. I want us to pray. Uh, when I was in prayer today, I, I felt a real uh, urgency to pray against evil spirits that have settled in this community. Um, I feel like some of them have moved in to camp around here. The devil likes to put strongholds in certain regions uh, and build up a stronghold so he can uh, do his work and uh, try to captivate the culture. And we've certainly seen the culture of this community take a turn uh, for the worse in so many ways. And so we've got a lot of things that God's not pleased with here in central Kentucky, I believe. If you'll rem some of you may remember this several years ago. We were, we were faced with uh, a drought. And we had a group of you all who joined me in prayer. And we prayed and God gave us rain here. He's been good to this area. And I think it would be, uh, we would bring hardship on ourselves if we submit to the ways of the world and to the ways of Satan. So I want us to pray. I want us to take a moment here and pray that God would be glorified in our communities, in these cities here in central Kentucky, and that he would be the one that would be preeminent in our thinking, in our lives, and how we live, and that we'll stand for the truth no matter what. God's looking for people who will do that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word tonight. Thank you for all those that have gathered here for us to strengthen and uh, exhort and encourage one another. <clears throat> thank you, Lord, most of all for the salvation that's been given to all of us. And we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sacrificing your life for us when we didn't earn it or deserve it. But Lord, we sense the warfare that's going on in this world and we sense it in our country and we sense it here locally in this region of our state, the warfare that's taking place. And so we pray, God, that you'll give us strength and that as we pray in the spirit realm, we'll pray against those things that would be detrimental to our children and to our families, the things that the enemy is trying to put into our schools and into our governments and into the places, Lord, that have so much influence in the lives of people. Lord, we rebuke Satan by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we take authority over him and his lies and his blindness and all of his deception by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would move into these communities, Lord, here in Kentucky, Lord, in this region. We pray, Lord, just like we read about in Daniel, how that there are strongholds, the prince of Persia, 
was standing guard over Babylon and over those, that region. And we just pray, God, against that. And we pray that you will equip us, Lord, to overcome all the things the enemy would try to set up. And those things would crumble to the ground in the face of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's go back to Romans chapter 2. And let's back up to verse 8. We went through verse 8, but let's back up to verse 8. Uh, and let's look at some things. I'll probably be using my board some tonight uh, so you can see a few things here. In Romans 2 and 8, he says, uh, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first, also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the rest of us. For there is no partiality with God. So God's going gonna to judge people. None of the things that we think matter will matter to God. When we stand before God, it won't matter whether we're male or female. And I still believe there's only two genders. We only need two bathrooms. Uh, it won't matter what color our skin is. It won't matter how wealthy or how poor we were. God's going to judge. You talk about being fair. God's going to judge every one of us based on our heart. Based on the inside of us. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He told Samuel this, remember? When Samuel was sent to anoint the king, David, he went over there and God told him, he said, God does not look on the outward appearance as men do. He knew how we would be. He said, but he looks at the heart. And so David was God's choice. So here he says something interesting. Now, this is a word that we... We use, when I, when I talk about love a lot around here, I use these two words, eros and agape. And these are two uh, Greek words that we use to describe love that come from their language. And I, this, we use this arrow with a hook to describe eros, and we use agape as a straight arrow. And this, these are... Two words that we translate love in English. And eros is a self-seeking love. Alright? And this love, agape, is God's kind of love. And it's love with no motive. We'll just say it that way. That's why we use that straight arrow to illustrate it. So, this love, I put stick man here. This love has the other person in mind. This love, eros, has self in mind, right? It comes out looking like agape, but it's got a motive back, right? So I illustrate it this way, uh, eros and agape. Eros in its original form was uh, a snake with its own tail in its mouth. It was consumed with itself. That's self-seeking. That's eros. Eros was not a sexual term in the beginning. It became one over time. 
but it's a self-centered, self-seeking love, which is totally contrary to what the Word teaches, right? The Word teaches for us to care more about the things of others than we do our own stuff, right? To prefer one another. That's what Christianity teaches. But this kind of stuff, and he's talking about that here, self-seeking, this is a false love because there's a motive with it. So when you are raising children, you've got to help them to be able to identify that, right? So that they're not persuaded with the wrong people for the wrong reasons, right? And so uh, we use this. He says to her, I love you. I want you to be my helpmate. I want us to have a godly family. And she says, I love you too. Your family's got a lot of money. See that? How one's self-seeking, the other one is has the other one in mind, right? She says, I want to be your helpmate. I want us to be a godly family. And he says, I love you too. You're good looking. You see the motive behind it. Now, <clears throat> what we got to guard against is some of this is in all of us. And it shows up. And you have to put it down, right? Paul said, I die daily. Because we can wake up and be self-centered, self-seeking. <clears throat> and that's why the flesh has to be crucified. And that's why Paul talks about dying daily, you right? <clears throat> I'll never forget this. Uh, God was doing stuff in me, even though I didn't want Him to. And I come home from the mines one day when I worked in the coal mines. I came home from the mines... I was still single at the time, and I wasn't no dummy. I wasn't moving out till I had to. I was saving my money. And so I, I came home from the mines, and I had graduated from college, and uh, I wasn't getting a pay raise. I, wasn't, I was what I thought well underpaid compared to everybody else, and nobody else around there had been to school or anything. So I didn't intend, I didn't think I should go over top of them, but I thought I should have been raised to a better pay rate. So I came home all covered in coal dust, and I come through the front door, and Mom was standing at the sink washing dishes. And I just started venting on Mom, you know, because that's my mom, right? And um, she never hardly even looked up from the dishes. She was washing, looking at the dishes, and she, she just quoted a scripture to me. Uh, the Bible says for a man to be content with his wages. And I said, I thought you were on my side. <laughs> but God was trying to do stuff in me. And then it wasn't long after that, the Lord showed up at the mines. And he, things worked out the way that it was a blessing. But sometimes we get so caught up in the flesh for ourselves, we're not even hearing what God's saying. And we've got to be careful of that so that we're not self-seekers. That we, You didn't get put here to make money. That wasn't why God put us here. That's just part of the journey. You and I got put here to represent Him, to know Him, to follow Him, and hopefully spread this gospel to the people that He puts in our circle. At that time, my circle was in the coal mines. Our circles may change over time, but God put you there. He didn't put you there to make money first, and that's how most people look at a job. God put me here to make, make some money. 
I'm going to get me a wallet with a chain on it. I'm going to make so much money. God puts you there to be a witness for Him first. The money's the side benefit. Boy, what if we attacked life that way? What if we realized that the circles we were a part of, God said, I put you here to show them me. I'll take care of your needs. Seek me first and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about that stuff. In fact, He tells us don't even worry about provision for tomorrow. Because we don't own tomorrow. We don't have any promise of tomorrow. But what if we were all settled in the fact that we were put in the circles we're in to glorify God? Then he goes on to say, he says, God's going to judge or he's going to reward, right? He's not a respecter of persons. He even breaks it down between Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles because the Jews were God's original choice, not because he loved them more, but because that was the line that he was going to bring redemption to the whole world through. And in fact, I have to remind people of this, Abraham was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. God called, he was a Chaldean. God called him out of Chaldea, separated him, gave his family the seal of circumcision, gave them the ways of God. That's what made him a separate people who later became known as Jews and Israelites. But he was a, he was a Gentile to start with. And so God chose him. And you know why he chose him? He had some failures. But you know why he chose him? And he called him his friend. That's the only guy in the Bible that the Bible calls the friend of God. He chose Abraham and he said this about Abraham. He said he'll be faithful to hand off to the next generation what I give him. And that's what God's looking for all of us. To be faithful. To hand this off. And so Abraham, he's a, he's a, he's, he's no partiality. So God don't love the Jews more than he loves the Gentiles. God had a plan and he had to call a man and he called this man out of Chaldea, raised him up and through his line who became known later as the Israelites and the Jews, that's where the Messiah was going to come through. God had to set that in motion because that was the redemption for every single one of us, the whole world. So he says he's going to, he's going to, we'll suffer if we don't obey the truth if we're self-seeking, if we live in eros instead of agape. <clears throat> and then he says, but we'll also be blessed. We can have glory and honor to those who do His will. Verse 12 says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Let's go over to James. Let's run over to James real quick. Let's remind ourselves of what he says to us uh, in James chapter 1. Let's go to verse uh, 22. James 1 and 22. Look what he says here in James 1 and 22. And we'll go back to Romans here in a second. This is going to be running letting the Bible interpret itself, right? He just said here in Romans, he said, it's not the hearers of the law are justified in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Here he says in 22 of James chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, the word, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The word blessed in the Greek is markarios. It means a recipient of divine favor. So if you are going to live out the word, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be a recipient of divine favor. And I know a lot of you have already found that out by obeying God's word. You've seen him come in and do things that you could have never made happen. I've seen a lot of that in my life. There's things that I could have never made happen. It took the Holy Spirit to move into those moments and work things out supernaturally. So that's what he's talking about here. So when you go back to Romans, he's saying it's not those who are just hearing the Word, but those who are doing the Word. And remember, there's a, a story Jesus gave us. He said this guy had two sons. And he said, I need you guys to go work in the field today, right? I'm putting this in my own words because I'm preaching and I can put it in my own word. But you know the story. I'm not trying to injure the story at all. I'm just trying to remind us about it. So he says, you know, you guys, I'll need you to work in the field. One of them says, I'll go. And the other son says, I'm not going. And then as the, the story plays out and the day plays out, what happened was the guy, the son who said he would go, did not go. And the one who said he would not go, had a change of heart, and went. Right? And then Jesus said, which one done the right thing? The ones whose actions followed through, right? If I can show you this, this is the word that we spring a lot of uh, teaching off. This is the Greek word pisteo, and it's the word that we translate faith and believing in the English. This word is a verb, right? Pisteo is a verb, and all New Testament faith and believing is undergirded with that root, pisteo. Pisteo is a verb. Let me take you back to English class. What do verbs do? They show action. So true faith has action. Faith without works, James said, is dead. So if you've got genuine faith, it has action with it, right? And so if I took you back to the Old Testament... The same thing is true of the Old Testament. They're two different words, hasa and batak. They're both verbs, and they both undergird all believing in the Old Testament. Those people were believers too. You read about them in Hebrews chapter 11 as they're looking for the promise. They're believing. But those are two verbs. One means to run to the shelters, an action involved. The other means to lean on the staff. Those, both, those are the words that are translated believing, faith, and things like that in the Old Testament. So your real faith is a verb. In fact, let me show you how God operates. John 3, 16, we all know that verse. We love that verse. But let's break it down. For God so, you know what the word is there? Agapal. It's the verb form of agape. For God so agapaled, verb, action. For God so loved that He did what? The first thing that happened from God's love was, what did it move him to do? To give, right? For God so loved that he gave. A true Christian's a giver. It's, it's just innate in them. That's who God is. When God takes up residence, we're givers. And he says, for God so agapowed that he gave, and what did he give? 
the greatest thing he had. He didn't, he didn't slide us at all. I remember Peter Lord, who's uh, older ministers on the circuit with guys like Bob Mumford and these guys that have been uh, well-known for years in ministry. And he said he's leaving, uh, going to the airport in Florida to uh, hold a meeting. And he said on the way to the airport, he said he looked up and the billboard said one of the lotteries was up to like 80 million or something. And he said, I just told God, he said, Lord, if you'd let me win that, he said, just think of all the mission work that I could do with all that. And he said, the Lord spoke to him and said, if I thought money would have redeemed people, he said, I would have sent gold instead of my son. Jesus is what redeems people. He's the way. So God, verb love, prompted him to do what? Give. And what did he give us? The best thing he had in heaven. His son. So then he says, he says, um, you're not just a hearing's not good enough, but we've got to be doers. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing, in the day when God will judge secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to stand by it, and you can throw it in the trash on the way out if you like to. But I don't think people are near as dumb as they let on. Paul said, even nature teaches you there's a God. I don't think people are going to slide in on God and say, we didn't know, we didn't know. Because in another place in Colossians, Paul said the gospel getting preached to everybody in the earth. And nature may do that, angels may do that, supernatural things may happen to cause that to be done. But do you hear what he said? He said he's going right down to the secrets. They may act like they're dummies to you and me, but God knows what everybody knows. He's the only one that knows how many seeds are in the watermelon. None of us know that, but God knows how many seeds are in the watermelon. And a lot of folks that like to play dumb and act like they're an atheist or whatever they want to call themselves, I believe there's far less of that than what people Act like there is. Because God knows what He's... Do you, if, if it's not God's will for anyone to perish, but that all would come under repentance according to Second Peter. He says, For God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come under repentance. If God is serious, if He meant that, and we know He did, He don't say anything He don't mean, what do you think God's doing to reach people? He, he's going after them. I, here's what I tell people when they're concerned about loved ones or somebody they love. And I, I have concerns too of people that I love that I don't think are ready to stand before the Lord. I have those concerns too. But here's what you can remember. God loves them more than we do. We didn't hang on a tree for them. Jesus did. And if, if you think about, if you've got the same, and we, to some degree, as limited as we are, uh, if there's a house on fire with my children and grandchildren in it, how many of them do you think I'm going to go in after? Every single one of them. 
I'll die trying to get them out. That's who God is. We, we don't give God enough credit. We act like God's just letting the world go to hell. That ain't what's happening. He's after men and women. He loves them more than we do. He's the one that hung on the tree. What do you think God's doing? He's after people. So Paul said they're going to be without excuse when they stand before the Lord. And he says in Colossians, and then Titus said the same thing. He said the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So I got news for you. God's called you to do your part, but He ain't called none of us to save the world. He done that with His Son. And don't think that if we don't get something done, God ain't getting it done. He's going to get it done. You remember what I preached on week before last out of the book of Esther? He, Mordecai said to Esther, said, here's your time. You can go in and stand up for God's people and be blessed. But if you're not willing to do it, you'll suffer and God will raise somebody else up to do it. God's job, His work gets done. What we get is offered to participate in it. If we don't participate in it, the rocks can start singing outside. But God's going to get His praise, and His Word's not going to return void, and He loves everybody in the earth more than any of us will ever love them. And He's reaching them with the message of salvation. However He does it, He's doing it. And so people are going to be without excuse because He's going to reveal. He says, he says oh, there'll be uh, their thoughts accusing or excusing them in that day. I like how this reads. He says, um, verse 15, uh, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, I'm not here, and I used this analogy a few weeks ago, I'm not here to confirm or annul whether Jeffrey Dahmer got saved or not. But when I watched his interview where he said he's a believer before he wound up dying in prison, and I may be, some of you may not know who that is. <laughs> um, does anybody know who the Fonz is? How old am I? That's a, uh, you know, uh, my office is out here in the bathroom, by the way. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. The fonts, right? His office was, eh, never mind. <laughs> but by the speech, that I, by the words that Jeffrey Dahmer used, whether he got born again or not, that's between him and God. But all of his language told me that he got confronted with Jesus. Even Jeffrey Dahmer did not get to leave the earth before somebody confronted him with who Jesus was. He, he talked better than some theologians, actually, with some of the stuff he was saying. It sounded like he got redeemed, but the main point I want to make about that situation is he was talking about Jesus and how he knew he was going to have to stand before him and be accountable to him. He, he got confronted with Jesus before he left this earth. That's how good God is. That's how good God is. Hitler knew about the Lord before he turned and did all his stupidity. That's what I'm saying. This playing possum with God, it ain't going to work. Ain't nobody going to be playing possum with God. Because God's going to say, you know what? I sent that missionary to you. That was me. I woke you up in that hotel room and told you to read John 3.16. That was my Holy Spirit that done that. 
I, tur- I had you turn on the TV when you were out of town and that preacher was talking directly to you right out of that television. God's faithful. We can't claim the same level of faithfulness God has, but He's faithful. Though I think it's Philippians that says that He remains faithful even when we're not. And that's basically what Mordecai was telling Esther. Said, here's your chance to get in on the blessing and be used of God. But if you refuse, you'll suffer. But God will still get His job done. He'll be faithful whether you're faithful or not. And how many times have we seen that? When you stifle the Holy Spirit, when you refuse to cooperate with God, when you refuse to open your mouth, then you may suffer for not doing His will, but God will get His will done. He'll get His will done. And then he says, in that day, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So everything that's buried will be brought to light. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. Now this is a Jew whom God is using to pin this down. All right? The Holy Spirit's working through uh, Paul, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, uh, Pharisee. He was in the hierarchy of the Jewish culture. Uh, way up in it, <clears throat> set at the feet of Gamela, and he's just, he's the man, he was one of the guys, right? Then he had an encounter with the Lord, right? Was uh, born again, and now he's being used by God to speak this to us, but he's a Jew, so he understands their plight, their dilemma, and he says, You make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. A light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, and here's his challenge to them, right? You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Right? A lot of times you'll hear me say from this pulpit, I'm preaching to myself, letting you all listen. He says, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? So he's challenging these guys that are throwing these demands on people. And this could be parental too, right? They say, you can't just tell a child what to do and not model it in front of them. Right? You live, we got to live what we say. And he says, he says uh, you who uh, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So he's dealing with the law and grace, and that's going to keep getting coming out in this book as we travel. He says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, you your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So again, that's kind of the same kind of language as saying, it's not good enough just to hear the truth. You've got to live it. right? It's not good enough just to hear the Word. You need to do the Word. And he says, he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not, physic- and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are transgressor of the law? So faith... And it has action. And true faith hangs on God's Word. So he says, 
If you love me, you'll obey me. Jesus says that over and over in John 14 and a lot of places there in John, in that area of vicinity there. If you love me, the real test of whether you love him or not is whether you obey him. There, there's not a litmus test out, oh, I went to church or I took communion or I did this or I did that. The real test of our love for him is whether or not we obey his word. That's the real test for our love. He says, for uh, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. So that goes back to what we're saying earlier. When you stand before God, skin color, whether you're a man or a woman, child or an adult, none of that matters. He's looking straight at the heart. Looking straight at the heart. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And then it, there was no chapters originally, so this thought needs to continue on. Chapters were put in later after the Bible had been around a while. <clears throat> Eusebius and his boys did that. And it, it doesn't injure the Bible, but sometimes it, it breaks the thought up. So let's keep rolling. It says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Speaking of the Jews. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may ju be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? So he's saying, if doing wrong makes God look better, would it be wrong for God to punish us because we're actually helping him out? <laughs> That's some twisted way people think sometimes. And he's saying, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? That's not what's going on here. I'm getting ready to show you what's going on here on this path. I'm going to break it down so you can see what's actually why Paul's doing what he's doing here. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, right? That's a twisted way of thinking, but people do that, right? They, they, they twist that, right? They twist the things of God. They'll say things like uh, <clears throat> David and Jonathan were homosexuals in the Old Testament, which is a complete lie. But they use that, they... What did Paul say? He said they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. They want to twist the Scriptures to make it say what they want it to say. Now, here, here's what we got to be careful of. We don't come to the Bible to fit the Bible to us. We come to the Bible to fit ourselves to it. If it corrects us, we move to that. If it challenges us, we embrace it. Right? If it calls us out, we love it. Don't you want to know when you're doing wrong? What if you're going down the wrong road? Would you like to know that? Right? That, that's, that's, that's what the Bible does. It reproves, encourages, and corrects us. So you may go come to the Bible and find all three of those things working in your life. But if you're getting off track, you want to know it. It's a funny thing to me, and, and I know you are not this way, because you love the Word, you wouldn't be out here on Wednesday night. But if you... <clears throat> If, if you go anywhere else in the culture with your stuff, like if you go to your financial advisor or your doctor or whoever, you don't want them 
messing around. You want them to tell you the truth, right? If you go to your financial advisor and you've lost 20% of your money, you don't want to hear him say or her say, well, everything's fine, just go home. You want to know and you want a new plan, right? You want to figure out what's going on. Same thing with a doctor. You don't want a doctor to find a tumor and say, oh, it's nothing to worry about. You're good and not even tell you about it. But yet when it comes to people's spiritual lives, they don't want to hear a warning. They don't want to hear the truth. Paul, Paul talks about, and that's what the newsletter that's coming out this next month is going to be about, is how blessed it is to be warned. What a beautiful gift from God to warn us. Well, let me ask you this. If, you're sta- if you know that the bridge is out down the road, around the corner, and you're standing there, and you know it, are you going to flag cars down, or are you just going to let them keep going? Well, when we don't witness, that's what's happening. For everybody that's lost, guess what? Everybody that's not ready to meet Jesus... The bridge is out. Are we going to tell? Are we going to flag them down? One of the guys at the satellite got saved in a revival meeting because he heard these words. He heard the evangelist say, How many roadblocks are you going to run through to get to hell? God sets up roadblocks in our lives, He warns us. He tries to get our attention. He loves us. He he wants us to know Him. He says, uh, For the truth of God has increased through my life. Why am I also judged sinner? Why not say, Let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, as some have affirmed that we say, their condemnation is just. That's not what Paul's doing. He says, And then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside and have uh, have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have uh, have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are all in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's America. That's where we're at now. That's our culture. And he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now pay attention here, and I'm going to show you something in just a minute. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Uh Uh-oh. And this is where the Jews struggle, right? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, no matter who we are, what our nationality is, what color our skin is, whether we're man or woman, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. This is what the gift God gave us. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be justified and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me show you something. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> sins could not be done away with. They were only put off. So you've got a contrast between the flood that destroyed the earth versus the fire that's going to destroy the earth and when we get a new heaven and a new earth that Peter talks about. If you notice what happens with the flood is, and I grew up on a creek, so this was obvious. We watched this year after year. When the water would raise, and some, one time we had a horrendous flood that wiped out cities. But we still had a lot of floods over the years, some not as severe as that, but still a lot of floods. And the floods would come through, and if there was trash on the side, like a, a Clorox jug or a, a basketball or a football or some kind of plastic pool or something, that flood would pick that stuff up and carry it away. And it may leave that area clean, but you would go down, if you went down the creek far enough, when the water receded, guess what you'd find? You'd find that jug. You'd find that basketball. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They took that sin away, and that's why they laid, had a scapegoat, and they would run that thing out of the camp and get it off, but it was still out there. But when the new covenant came, and... It's like a consuming fire. If you take that milk jug or that Clorox jug or that basketball or plastic and you put it in the fire, it will consume it. It's gone. That's the new covenant. Your sins are gone. Isn't that good news? We ought to give God a little praise for that. Amen. They're not down the creek. They're gone. Now here's what happened. Here's what Paul's trying to describe. Before the law came, God called this man Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham, right? We're in Kentucky, so we call him Abraham, but his name is Abraham. They speak with gutturals. There's life, breath. That's why when God changed his name, he breathed life into him. Abraham. Why did he breathe? Because he believed God. So it's always been faith, pisteo, that God's been after. But we're stubborn. Right? So God's between faith of Abraham and the cross, which is pisteo, came the law. The law sandwiched in between there. Why? Because the law done two main things. It proved our inability to please God in our own strength and our need for a Savior. Job called Him Redeemer. Another place, He's called our kinsman Redeemer in the book of Ruth. Job said, oh, that I had a daysman, a mediator. He was waiting. We got Him. His name's Jesus. But it's always been faith that God's been after, even before the law. The law came just to prove our need. And if you go on the YouTube channel, there's a 20-minute clip on 
the x-ray that explains exactly what the law's doing. But it's always been faith that God's been after. But we're stubborn, right? I can't tell you the times that my, my wife, our children's mother, uh, <clears throat> we would have some discussions. And she'd say, oh, go stop that. And I'd say, no, let them learn a lesson. <laughs> you know? And it's the mother's nature, right? To nurture. And it's the dad's nature to say, take off down the road. Let's see what you can do. <laughs> and they come back with knees tore up and <laughs> tooth missing. But you, you, we, we want them to, because we're stubborn. You know, and it's the nature of the flesh. Right? Get out of my way. I'll show you I can do it. Moses couldn't keep the law. None of them could. Only Jesus could keep the law. And now I'm in Him. Clothed with Him. So, let me grab this. I'm going out of the camera's view. I'll be back in a second. You guys that are watching. <coughs> I should keep my hankies over here. We'll get into this later in the book. Chapter 7, 8-ish, somewhere in there. But when you get born again you get clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul, we'll see this in our study here, Paul talks about imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. He uses both of those terms. I get righteousness imputed to me only because I believe. I've been a sinner. My performance is as filthy rags. There's nothing for me to come in and say, accept me because, because what? Fill in the blank. There's nothing to put in there. I was a sinner. So it's by faith, right? I just believe. I believe you're my righteousness. I believe you'll forgive my sins. I believe you're the eternal life. I believe. So he says, okay, you believe that? You're clothed in my righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Didn't earn it. Didn't deserve it. Just been clothed in it. Then this journey that I'm on from here until the Lord calls me home, and I'm going to be around a while because He fixed me up. But until this journey... Until he calls me home or until he raptures us all out of here, which is probably right around the corner. I believe we're close to the, the end of all this. This same righteousness that's been imputed into my life, it's clothed me and covered me. Now I'm seen in Christ as Christ because my righteousness is not going anywhere. This same righteousness that this journey he's got me on is being imparted into my life. So not only am I being clothed in his righteousness, that righteousness is flooding into my life, making me like Him. That's the goal. The goal is that this same righteousness that's clothing me floods my life, that I become more like Jesus. Now, who benefits? i just use myself as an example. Who benefits if Matthew Robbins becomes more like Jesus? Everybody in my circle. You all don't see, need to see more of me. I got bad news for y'all. The world don't need to see you all. They need to see Jesus in us. That's what they need to see. And so this journey I'm on, and I, I got tripped up in this early on because I was <clears throat> in a church that, you know, taught you get saved one day and you're perfect the next, right? That ain't how this works. You get saved and you're on... Discipleship's not a destination. And I wish I'd learned this earlier. It's not a destination. It's a journey. 
And guess what God's doing? He's working on you and me. Think about it like this. If you were going to have to live with you forever, what would you be doing to you? God's going to have to live with all of us forever. And He's working the kinks out. He's taking us places where His... And so, of all the beautiful things the Holy Spirit does, by wooing us to Christ, by the gifts in Romans 12, and the manifestations in Corinthians 12, all the beautiful things the Holy Spirit does, the number one job of the Holy Spirit, after glorifying Jesus, that's His first job, is to conquer you and me. And that's a job. Because he's wanting to conform us into the image of Christ. And I've got something really powerful to share this Sunday that will change us if we'll let it. He wants us to be conformed in the image of Christ. Have you ever reacted to something or done something and think, man, that, didn't, that wasn't good. <laughs> Well, that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. I have, I've been doing this a long time now, and I've had people come into my office, and their excuse a lot of times is, well, I'm this way because my dad's this way, or I'm this way because of my mom's this way. And my response, you all, some of you heard this, me say, well, you and your dad both need to change. <laughs> you and your mom both need to change. Somebody's got to quit, stop the line somewhere, right? And so we can't use that as an excuse. And the Holy Spirit wants to conquer all the regions of our life. He don't want anything in our lives that He can't touch. I'll leave you with that thought. God not, may not require you to do what the widow woman did. He may not require you to put all your money in the offering. He might ask you to do that. You're never going to outgive God, so if He asks you to do that, He's got a plan. He may not ask you to go get the last meal out of that barrel and feed the preacher or the prophet before you feed your own son. He might. He may not ask you to give something away that you really like, but He might. He may not ask you to lay your life down and be a martyr, but He might. But here's one thing we all need to reconcile. God may not ask any extreme thing out of all of us. He might. But there shouldn't be anything in our lives that God can't touch. Money, stuff, life, whatever. That's where we need to live. We need to live where everything we have, God, has access to it. We don't withhold anything from Him. Because He'll do a lot better with it than we will. <laughs> Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You for this time we've had together. Thank You for the Holy Spirit and the reality of who He is. I just ask You to move into this moment with us. Help us to be sensitive to the things that are going on in the spiritual realm. That we can pray against those things. Help us to know You in a greater way. That's the call. The call is to know You. The task may change. They may come and go in seasons in our life. You may task, give us a task to do this or that, but the call will remain, and that call is to know You. 
I thank you, Lord, that you are here and available to us and that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We're so thankful that you have given us your son. And everybody said... Mm -hmm.